Uh, a couple things. Let me uh, let me uh, mention a couple things. One, uh, Dan forgot to mention that if you are a guest, if this is your first time here, um, we do have a. He said there's a gift for you over there, and this is the gift. It's an Exodus cup, but inside this cup, there's actually a pack of gum, and believe it or not, there's a five-dollar Starbucks gift card. So if this is your first time here, not first time since last spring, okay? Uh, if your first time here. Um, so if, if Dan questions that you're lying, he won't give it to you. Anyway, just say it. But if you're, afterwards, we have the purple sheets. We'll have a chance we can drop them in if you're new or if you want to bring it over to Dan afterwards, but you get uh, one of these. So uh, second thing is, and we've done this the last couple of weeks, but anybody who's interested, uh, there's a group of us that uh, gather in this room right over here before the service, probably about 9.30, 9.45, just to pray. So anybody's welcome. Uh, pray for about 15 minutes. Pray for the Spirit of God in the service. Um, so anybody's welcome. Uh, you don't have to sign up. You don't have to have a membership card or anything like that because we don't have membership cards. So, um, hey, real quick, any any uh, any Quisp or Quake cereal people? Just wondering. Anybody? Okay. Oh, my wife. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. Wow. <laughs> Didn't know that. Um, they don't even make that anymore. Do they sell it anymore? Quisp and Quake. Okay, in certain stores in Ohio, you can buy Quisp. Okay. So uh, that definitely shows our ages. Hey, let's pray, and we're going to look into God's Word this morning. Uh, God, we do believe uh, that we um, live not only in a physical reality, that we're standing on a hardwood floor in a room that's air-conditioned on the corner of 3rd and Lincoln, but we also believe that we live simultaneously in an invisible world. We have souls that we can't see and others can't see, but you see. And there's a spirit that's sent from you, the Holy Spirit, that is able to talk to us, speak to us, show us things. And um, so I pray that you would give us all ears to hear whatever you're saying to us, eyes to see whatever you want to show us, because we believe, God, that you're for us, you're not against us, and you want us to be the full of life and love that come from you kind of people. And so you show us, and uh, we'll respond. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, if you were here last week, uh, I did, we had a word, and you're going to see a lot of this word in the next long time. The word's catalyst. Catalyst is a person or thing that causes change. And we talked about last week uh, from the book of Nehemiah as well as other things in Scripture where somebody takes a step to do something that begins a catalyst to bring about change, whether it's in your life or the lives of others. We talked about how Jesus was a catalyst. And often for change to happen, there needs to be some kind of catalytic movement, catalytic event. Sometimes it's a really challenging thing for all of us to bring about change in our lives as a catalyst. But the other word you're going to see a lot of in the near future is, and I'll put it on, have it on the back of this case, is the word abnormal. All right? Abnormal. Not normal or typical. Extremely large. Um, abnormal also has the connotation, if you look on dictionary.com, of odd, weird, irregular, deviant. But I'm going to say, for me, and my hope, and our, the desire of our leadership here at Exodus, is all of us would aspire to be abnormal. Because there's some degree where ab abnormality is maybe what we should be aspiring to because maybe normal isn't good anymore. Maybe normal, our normal is set incorrectly. It's interesting. I was Googling abnormal this week. 
And uh, there was this one person, this uh, experiment, they were part of an abnormal psychology class. So they were doing this experiment to see how people respond to abnormal behavior. So they had this uh, college student, grad student, in a grocery store, and she had on a leash a dog. But the dog was a stuffed animal. <laughs> and, of course, one of her friends is in the other aisle videotaping all this. But she's walking around and talking to the dog as if it's real. So she's going to the food aisle. How about this dog? Would you like that? Oh, you don't like that one? Okay. Hey, stop playing in that aisle. Get back over here. No, you can't eat cat food. And she'd walk around the store and talk to the dog and put food right in. How does that smell? You like that one? Oh, you don't like that? No, you can't eat the cat. And it just went on for like four minutes. The whole point of the experiment was what? They were wanting to see how other people were reacting to the abnormal behavior. How do you think other shoppers were reacting? Well, they were like pulling their kids, getting, let's go to the next aisle, we'll, we'll get to the dog food later. I mean, and they're walking like this and stopping and shaking their head. Just Google abnormal psychology and you'll find one of those somewhere. But the point is, part of the reason we don't like being abnormal, we conform to what we think is the norm, is we're not sure what other people might think about us. If you're honest, if I'm honest, I know that's what it is, because you don't want to be seen as out of step with the norm. But sometimes I wonder, sometimes I know, that the norm of what we think is Christian behavior or the Christian life has been kind of neutered a bit, watered down a bit, because we're not quite sure we want to be abnormal. We're not sure we want to be different, even though the Bible is full of stories of men and women who had abnormally large faith, abnormally large joy, abnormal large capacity for love, abnormal courage. And you take those steps, even in the Christian world, you, you, set, your, you set the bar where, where Jesus set the bar and where God set the bar for what normal is, then abnormal really is normal, and normal is abnormal, and you kind of starts messing with your mind a little bit. But our, our goal at Exodus is we're going to, we want to be abnormal people. We don't want to settle for what, we th- what we've seen ourselves and others settle for as followers of Jesus, because we believe Jesus always says there's more. We're going to look at a story today from a woman in the Old Testament who doesn't even have a name, or not, not given her name, who had abnormal faith. And it's the kind of faith I'm, I want, and my guess is the kind of faith all of you want. So we're gonna, what we've been doing the last few weeks, and if you haven't been here, college students, which is understandable, kind of Exodus, where are we going? So I, you know, what, how do we know where we're supposed to go as a church? How do you know where you're supposed to go as an individual? What's your goal as a Christian? Why are you here? Why are we here at church? What are we doing? How do we know if we're being successful and so the last few weeks I've done a couple sermons, kind of some key sermons I've done in the past that really kind of talk about what I'll just call the navigational values. Because sometimes, like Lewis and Clark, they knew they were going to go to the Pacific Ocean. They knew they were supposed to find a waterway. They didn't know exactly how they were going to get there, but they had a compass and they had what I would call navigational values. They knew certain things would be true as they tried to get there. So as Christians, the, the get there is... We want to be alive, awake, and free. We want to be the kind of people Jesus said could be full of the life and love that comes from God. Agents in his hands to bring that change to other people. But yet, as we get there, we tend to kind of buy into kind of the American value system, and it messes up because 
Go to the next slide. First, we talked about that God flunks geometry. Then we took the Israelites to the promised land. He didn't go the straight, short route. He didn't understand straight-line geometry. He went this weird route. And sometimes you and I get frustrated at God because we think we know the fast, efficient way for us to have the changed character and lifestyle that we know we want as followers of Jesus. But God doesn't seem to get his straight edge out. He kind of just draws freehand. But he knows exactly what he's doing. But we don't want that. We, we like straight lines. Last week, then, we talked about in the book of Nehemiah, anytime you move toward that kind of growth, anytime you move toward freedom and life, you're always going to have opposition. Nehemiah was going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and he had opposition. Because there is, a, just like we talked about the Holy Spirit, there also is the spirit of the, there is Satan. We believe, he's, we believe he's real. We believe he fights against the purposes of God. So every time you make a movement, a choice toward freedom and life, you will hit some kind of opposition. So you make a movement to change something in your character. You make a movement to stop a habit that you know is not bringing you life. You make a movement with your finances, with your life or whatever, toward, I think this is what God, you make a movement toward obedience, and I will guarantee you there'll be, there'll be opposition because that's not what Satan wants. So we understand as we're going from here to there, it's not going to be a straight line, and it's not going to be an easy line. So today we're going to talk about then another principle of kind of the journey, and it comes from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings 17. If you know anything about the book of 1 Kings, which is okay if you don't, but if you... 1 Kings takes place, as I said, about 800 B.C., 874 B.C. The, the Jewish people were kind of in a mess then. And if you, if you ever read the book of Kings, it lists all the different kings of Israel and then Judah, which was when the country was split in half. There was the southern half called Judah, the northern half called, called Israel. And you read about such and such was a king. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Next king, he did good in the eyes of the Lord. Evil, good. And most of the kings were kind of disasters. So God's people were kind of in a disastrous situation because most of the kings were giving themselves to idolatry and, you know, just a mess. So enter in a, a, a guy named Elijah. He was a prophet. Loved God. God loved him. God honored him. The king at that time was a guy named Ahab, and his wife was Jezebel. You've even heard Jezebel. Even in culture, people know Jezebel is not a good thing to be called because Jezebel was an evil queen. Ahab was an evil king. God gets to the point where he pronounces judgment on the kingdom, and he says, through the prophet Elijah, do you tell the king now there's not going to be any rain anywhere until I say so? So God wants people to understand, I'm in charge, not you. So Elijah tells people, no more rain anywhere until God says so. So a famine takes over in the land. Famine in those cultures, there was no rain. A famine was just totally destructive. So what happens then is, I mean, in the background, we'll get to this. Elijah, he doesn't have food to eat, so the first thing Elijah does, he, God tells him to go to this brook. And he's going to have ravens bring him food, which I don't know if I want to eat food that comes out of a dirty raven's mouth, but that's how he's fed. But then that stopped, and so Elijah's got to figure out what to do next, and all this time other, everybody else around them is suffering from the famine. And then here's what happens next, all right? So we pick it up in 1 Kings, part with the chapter of 17. And then the Lord says to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon, I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So 
Now, this city is not in the Jewish country. It's not in Israel. It's in a different country. So he's sending Elijah to a country where they're mostly pagans. The pagans simply meaning they don't worship God. They have other idols. He's sending Elijah. He's saying, Elijah, I want you to go to this city where there's none of the people that follow me, but there's going to be a widow there that's going to feed you. And it's a famine. So people are running out of food and water. All right, next one. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her. Okay, he didn't know this woman. This woman didn't know him. It's a famine. Would you please bring me a little water and a cup? Okay, just stop here for a second. You're, okay, it's a famine. There's a drought. This stranger comes and asks this old widow woman, can you give me a cup of water? Seemingly a little bit insensitive, Elijah. It's an old woman. Can you give her a break? As she was going to get it, he calls her, uh, bring me a bite of bread, bring me a bite of, bring me a bite of bread too. Now at this point, if you're me when I first read it, you don't really like Elijah. It's like, come on, man. This is a widow who's in the middle of a drought. There's no food. You ask her for water, okay, you know, maybe it's hospitality, you're new. And then you're saying, can you bring, bring me a bite of bread too? I'm sure the woman's kind of like, who do you think you are? But he's doing what God told him to do. So Elijah's not being a jerk. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Elijah's a jerk. It seems that way. The next one. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God, Lord your God. She didn't acknowledge God as being God. But you'll see a transformation here. That I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar. And a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I will die. It's pretty sad. I mean, very sad. So God sent Elijah to ask this woman to feed him, but she herself says, I'm just gathering a few sticks, and I've got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I have no idea what it takes to make a loaf of bread, but I do have a little bit of, fl a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, and I hope my wife wasn't planning on using that this afternoon, so we're out of it. All right? A little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. This is three cups of flour, one cup of oil. This is what she had left. Um, not exactly. We don't know how much she had left. Enough for a loaf of bread. Okay, so she says, I'm just gathering. I'm going to go back home, make some bread, cook my last loaf of, loaf of bread. And as far as I know, there's no more food for us, so my son and I will probably die. Which was a common occurrence in drought, not only today, but also in history. When there's a drought and a famine, people die. I mean, I don't mean to be insensitive, but people do die. All right, next one. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Give me what you have first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops go again. So here Elijah is saying, I know you only have enough for like a meal, a loaf. Give me the first loaf. Now granted, lest you think Elijah is being selfish, Elijah is really being a mouthpiece for God. So he's saying to the woman, give God that first loaf. And, and you'll never lack. There'll always be flour and olive oil left in your containers in a time when the Lord sends rain and the crops are so, so there's no Kroger to run down to. There's no marsh. There's no convenience food mart. There's nothing to go to to get more. There is no more. 
and at this point in my life or in your life, if we're, having, if we're running out, and I'm not just talking about running out, of course, flour and oil. I'm talking if you're running out of money. You're running out of emotional energy. You're running out of the stamina to follow Jesus. You're running out. you got nothing else to give people. You're at the edge of your rope. And again, I'm not just talking about financially. That's part of it at times, but also it's emotionally. You're at the edge of the rope, and then God says to you, give me more. As a matter of fact, give me what you have left. And what's the, if you're like me, my response back to God is, come on, what more, what more do you want? Right? Because if that's all I have left, can I at least keep it for me? Can I at least survive a little bit longer on what I have? And you're asking me to give it to you, God? I can still remember, I, I think I've told this story before, but it's still part of my life story. I still remember a point in, uh, probably about 10 years ago, maybe less, where I, was, I felt as if, in my marriage, I felt like... I, God was asking to be, give, me to give more to my wife. And by more, I meant more emotional energy. More, and not that she was draining me. I'm not saying that. All right? she, I felt like God was wanting me to look for more ways to serve her. And my complaint was this. Okay, God, I'll do that, but then you need to tell her to give me more. Because if I give her more and she doesn't give back in the same proportion... I'm a math guy, God. I used to be a math major. You know that. And I know if I give more than I get, sooner or later I go empty. And God, if I go empty, I got nothing. So God, I'll do that. I'll give more as long as you tell her, tell her, God, to give more back to me. And I, and I clearly remember a prompting I felt from God where he said, no, you give more and let me worry about what she gives back. I was like, no, no, God, you don't understand. She needs to give back to me because otherwise I'll run out. And I felt as if God said to me, but do you trust me to refill you? Yeah, I do, God, but why don't you do it through Kathy? I kept having that kind of, he's like, no, do you just trust me? You don't have to manipulate anybody to get what you need from them. Will you trust me to give you what you need, and if you trust me to give you what you need, you'll always have enough. It was, it was kind of one of these wrestling matches I had, and to some degree I still have with God. Because do we believe, if we do believe that our, our religion is not a religion of morality or obligation, it's a religion of supernatural power, Christianity. So if we believe that when Jesus says he'll pour into us, like a stream of living water, if the, if the source of power and life and goodness comes from outside of us, inside of us, then we are free to no longer manipulate other people to give us what we need from them emotionally, financially, or whatever. So the core of our faith to some degree is, do we believe that he will do that? Do we believe that he can replenish something that in our logical minds seem like, okay, that's kind of odd because if I, if I give that away to Elijah, then I run out. And if I run out, I die. And I die faster than I want to die. So, but that's how, we, that's how we think about that. So Elijah's asking this woman, give me first. Give God first. Give God first. Give God first. Next part. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. There was always enough. Say that word, those two words. Always enough. Say that again. Always enough. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers 
just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. We don't know what it was like. We don't know if they dipped out the flour and then the next day it's like, well, where'd that come from? We don't know. And you could relegate it to kind of a fairy tale kind of story. That's really nice, all the magic that happened. But we don't believe the Bible stories like this are magic. We believe it's true stories. And we believe miraculously God did something that brought what wasn't there into what is there. Just like he can magically, magically, I mean supernaturally, bring into your life what's there that you don't think is there. Because he can bring it into your life. Power, strength, peace, goodness, confidence. He can do that. Now, so the next slide. There's the word again, always enough. So God says, if we live a life of trust in him, there's always enough. Always enough food, always enough money, always enough emotional energy to still live a life of life-giving love and goodness toward other people. There's always enough. And you might say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I, I, I know there's times in my life where there hasn't been enough. But the promise of God is there always will be. Always enough. There's always enough, always enough, always enough. One of the passages that we have mentioned lately, go to the next one from 2 Corinthians. And this is where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, specifically in this case about money and financial generosity, but the principle is broader than that. And God will generously provide all you need. In other words, always, there will always be enough. Then you'll always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So the goal, obviously, is generosity. It's not just your survival. And some of you students who have or will pay your first semester bill soon, or you have, or you're going to buy your book soon, you're like, well, I'm, I don't really have enough. And I'm not saying all of a sudden somebody's going to pay for your books tomorrow or whatever, but there is always enough for what God wants you to accomplish. And for the rest of us who pay bills and trying to figure out what God wants of us, there's always enough. One of the things you may have heard me talk about lately, and if you're the student, you haven't heard this, but, and this is not the point of this message, but the, uh, the money situation in Exodus, our savings account is as low as it's been in a while. And so my temptation, and I think the temptation of all of us in leadership is, okay, let's get to... Uh, uh, survival mode. That was my temptation. Like, what do we have to do to make sure we survive? What do we have to make sure we, we survive? And, and I think what we've realized is, you know what? The best way to survive or the best way to thrive in the way God wants is let's keep giving money away. Instead of figuring out what we can hold on to, let's keep giving it away. All right? And that principle goes to emotionally if you're in a relationship with somebody. But financially, it's like, well, we could kind of hold and not give away money we've said we'd give away, whether it's the positive link like Dan talked to or other things we give money to. We give money to other churches in town. You, hear, you'll hear, you will hear more about that in the next week, ways in which we give. We're going to give 5000 We have $5,000 budgeted to give to other needs of other churches in Bloomington. And we're going to be doing, you'll hear more about that in the next week of ways in which we're going to do that. And it, it, it's, in, it's counterintuitive to give away money when your money is tight. It's counterintuitive to give away emotional energy when your emotional energy is low. It's counterintuitive to give when your scale says low. But that seems to be part of the navigational values that God wants of his people is it's counterintuitive and it's abnormal faith 
to do something that doesn't make sense on paper. And I'm not talking about blind faith or presuming God has to do what you want him to do. I'm not saying that. God's not a genie that if we rub the lamp right, he gives us what we want. But there are certain principles about how we get fueled and filled by God that seems to be the way you get is you give. And it makes no sense. Because what we can have is we have the always enough mentality or we have the next mentality, which often we give ourselves to, is there's not enough. Not enough. And that's what one author I like calls the mentality of scarcity. It's a scarcity mentality. Because if you have a scarcity mentality about your emotional energy or your finances or whatever, you're always trying to figure out how to keep the lid closed. And you'll give out only what you need to give out to get from other people what you need from them. And it becomes this silly game we play, and it's this not enough mentality. Well, it's just not enough. Not enough, not enough, not enough. You know the story from the children of Israel and when they were in the desert, and they were fed by manna, which was these flakes. It was kind of a you know, grain-like bread flake that fell in the morning. And what God told them was, every morning you go out and you gather enough for you, enough for each person in your family. Don't gather any more than that, because if you gather any more than that, the extra is going to go rotten. Now, see me, and I tell people this, if I would have been one of those people then, I would have probably gone out in the morning, it's like, I know God said just to gather enough for me, but what if it doesn't show up tomorrow morning? What if God doesn't keep his promise? Shouldn't we keep a little bit in reserve just in case? And maybe some of you would have kind of been with me on that and like, yeah, couldn't we, maybe we can freeze it. Maybe it won't go bad if we freeze it. Oh, no, no freezers then. Sorry, I can't do that. But I would be one thinking in a scarcity mentality. Well, what if there's not enough tomorrow so I should get a lecture today? But if you gathered more than you were supposed to, that extra always went bad. Because God's promise was every day there will be enough. Every day there will be enough. No, you can't plan ahead No, you can't store, so you don't have to trust me anymore, but every day there will be enough. And what's interesting with that is this principle that Jesus talks about over and over again. And go to the next slide here. Because this whole idea of if you want to be full, you have to let go is one of these principles that kind of makes no intuitive sense. But Jesus says if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news... You will save it. Truth be told, when we hear that, it is a huge challenge to our hearts and our faith. Because what he's saying is, if you want to get more, you have to give it up. If you want to save, you have to lose. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul. Is anything worth more than your soul? One of the things we say at Exodus is we're going to define success by our capacity to give away as opposed to accumulate. And here's what I mean by that. Because think about the American model. Our mindset is the successful people are those who have accumulated a lot. The scriptural definition of success is those who have a capacity to give away a lot. It's not, scripture isn't against wealth. It's against accumulation of wealth for the sake of security. 
But the model of success is, no, we're going to measure our success by our ability to give out money and give away money and give away ourselves to other people. Because it's not about, even like it was in my marriage, it's not about my survival in marriage. It's about whether God wants me to pour out into my wife and kids more. Whether or not I think God's doing it correctly, it's more about what God's asking me to give than it is for him to ask me to kind of hold on to. It was interesting. I... uh, I was reading this week, I don't know if you, this was, maybe shows my age a little bit, one of my favorite shows years ago was a show called What About, Everybody Loves Raymond, I was going to say What About Bob, that's a movie, Everybody, Everybody Loves Raymond, Ray Romano, you know the show? And I was reading about, you know, the show lasts I think seven years or eight years, and uh, before that show started he was a 29 year old living in his parents' basement, and I didn't know this about him, it was interesting, but they said on the la- night of the last show, which I don't think I saw, they said he actually talked after the show. And he said when he first went to New York or LA, wherever he was going, nine years prior to, to kind of get his start, his brother had handed him a note. And all the note said simply was, what does it benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Because his brother was a devout Catholic, still is a devout Catholic. I think Ray Romano grew up in a Catholic home. But the whole point his brother was trying to say was, don't forget that success is not defined by how much you get. Success is defined by how much you give. And not give just randomly, like random acts of kindness, but you give in response to what God's asked you to do. And it will not make sense. It will be intuitively stupid to you. But it's exactly what God wants of people, like the widow, like Elijah, who had to exercise abnormally large faith. And the people around, I'm sure when the woman told her neighbors what she was doing, if she told them at all, they were probably like, you're crazy, lady. Save it for yourself. But somehow this woman who was a pagan knew that what Elijah was saying, there was some ring of truth in her spirit. and She, she knew this may be her hope for life. And it was. Now, where do we get this from? Where we get this from is this. Jesus, when Jesus not only said this, this is how Jesus lived for us. And we, we always finish uh, worship at Exodus with communion. And the whole tone of Jesus' life was he gave himself. He gave himself. The book of Philippians says he emptied himself. So we don't do this simply because God's saying, you guys need to give more. No, he's saying no, because look what Jesus did. Jesus gave himself for us. He gave himself for our life, for our redemption, for our freedom, for us to be alive, awake, and free. He gave himself. And because he gave himself, we can now live in full confidence that he will give himself to us over and over again. And we will never run dry of what we think we have to protect. Because he'll give, he'll give, he'll give, he'll give, he'll give. So that's the challenge. I don't know your stories, all of you. I don't know your financial stories. I don't know your relational stories. I don't know all your story with God. But I'm guessing every one of us has some way in which we're not quite sure if we can give that to God. Because if I do that, I may get empty and I may die sooner than I want to. So my goal is survival. But God's prompting all of us in some ways saying, no, give, let it go. And when you give, that's how you become alive. That's my challenge, and uh, let's pray. God, we thank you for this widow of Zarephath. We don't even know her name. Um, 
but she's in my Hall of Fame, and I'd love to be like her. I'd love to have the abnormally large faith that she had, that she was willing to give ultimately to you first, even when it made no sense. So I pray for every single person here, whether it's they're wrestling with what you're asking them to give away. And what happens in all of us is fear, because we're not sure ultimately that we do trust you to fill us with what's going to be left void. So give us a deeper trust. Give us abnormal trust of you. Give us abnormal confidence that what you're going to do is that there will always be enough for whatever you want us to accomplish, for our freedom, for our goodness, for our life, for our joy, for our courage, for our love. There's always enough of what you can pour into us. There's always going to be enough. And you even say there's not only enough, there's abundantly more. So would you give us the confidence that you're an abundant, giving, always enough kind of God to each one of our lives and each one of our stories. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus. Uh, Amen.